Chapter 18, Ring Finger. Luke 15, verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What must it have been like for our Lord to leave the eternal splendor of heaven for a lonely little life on this planet? We can only really daydream about it. We could never know how far he came down for us. Even when we're there in glory with him forever and ever, and we see all that he left with our own eyes, we probably still won't really understand. Here on earth, our most brilliant minds have spent hundreds of years studying the night sky, mapping out the seemingly endless array of planets, stars, and galaxies. But he made them all, one by one. He knows their names. He could skip a galaxy like a stone across an ocean of stars we'll never see. But that's not all. It's not just the far-flung solar systems, star clusters, and galactic halos he left behind. Jesus left heaven. He emptied himself and left his throne. He left wonders we have never imagined and would not comprehend even if we saw them. He left armies of eternal warriors, those living flames who serve him, fight for him, and sing his praise without end. Have you ever thought about what it must have been like for those troops of the heavenly armies to watch Jesus descend into our world? Did the angels understand what they were seeing? On the night he was born, some of them got the chance to fill the night sky with worship. It was an awesome display of light and joy and music from the ranks of the invincible forces of Almighty God. But after that, the Father held them back. When Jesus the toddler said his first word, did those angels want to fill the sky one more time with singing? When he took his first step, were they readying the choral ranks for an order of worship that never came? They watched him in Bethlehem. They watched him in Egypt and then in Nazareth. The angels must have marveled as they watched their maker quietly grow in favor with God and man. Do you ever wonder if the battalion commanders of the father's troops were begging him to let them show up in undeniable visible splendor every time our Lord resisted temptation as a perfectly righteous teenager? The incarnation must have been the most confusing thing angels have ever seen. Why would their king lay aside his glory and rightful throne to become one of the little dust creatures? Not only that, but why would he let himself be ignored? You see, he didn't just become one of us, but he became so utterly normal and ordinary looking that no one really noticed him. How could the Son of God not stand out? They probably thought, what in the world is he up to? 1 Peter 1 says that there are things about Jesus and his grace and salvation that angels just don't understand. Even though they've seen him face to face and served him with joy in unknown ages past, there are things about being his that they don't quite get. He says that they long to look into these things. In other words, they want to know what's up between us and Jesus, but they don't know. 
And in some strange way, we are their instructors. I have to think that if I were an angel, the saddest and most offensive thing in the whole Bible would be that place in John chapter one, where he says, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. I mean, how could this be? How could the people Jesus made turn around and reject him? How could the maker not belong? In Luke chapter 15, Jesus was in trouble with the religious leadership because he hung out with sinners. It probably wouldn't have been so bad if he had just preached at them like John the Baptist did. But no, Jesus had to take it a step further and a step too far. He spent time with them. He ate meals with them. Jesus actually seemed to like them. He was friends with sinners. The leadership didn't get it. They were probably thinking, what in the world is he up to? So Jesus told them three stories, or really three versions of the same story, where someone lost something important to them, then got it back and threw a party to celebrate. That second story is about a woman who lost one out of 10 silver coins. Biblical scholars tell us that these 10 coins together were representative of a woman's betrothal or marriage. In their culture, it was like their version of a wedding ring. Somehow she realized that one of the coins was missing. And Jesus said, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? I mean, maybe she had to light a lamp because it was already nighttime when she discovered it was missing. Maybe it was late, but she could not rest. There was no way she could sleep until she found it. She tore apart the furniture and turned the house upside down until she finally found it. And when she did, she threw a party for all her friends. In some ways, a wedding ring is only a symbol. It doesn't make you married. And if you lose it, you aren't unmarried. But in other ways, it's not just a symbol. The wedding ring is a real physical thing that says, I belong to someone. I am loved. Someone has made promises to me and their life is now bound to mine. Over the years, my wedding band has literally changed the shape of my finger. No kidding. There's like this actual indention there. My finger looks weird without the ring on it. And my wife's ring finger is exactly the same way. There's this indention there that needs the ring because we belong to each other. I may never fully understand what our Lord gave up to come down here. And I know I'll never be able to comprehend the agonies he endured to make us his own. I do know this though. When we were lost, he could not rest. He couldn't sleep. He came down here as the light of the world to sweep away all our wrong. He tore the world apart to get us back. Why? Because he loves you like a groom loves his bride. You belong to him. He has made promises to you and his life is now eternally bound to yours with cords of love. 
At the end of this particular version of the story, Jesus said, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The angels don't fully understand it all, but when the Lord they love is as happy as a groom on his wedding day, they can't help but celebrate. For more, get to a quiet place. Read Luke 15, 8 through 10, and 1 Peter 1, 8 through 12. If you were to daydream about all Jesus left behind to come down here for us, how does it make you feel toward him? What does it mean to you that he feels about you the same way a groom does toward his bride? What does it mean to you that he wants the love the closeness and the commitment of marriage with you. Talk to him about it.